Morning Liberty. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Good Morning Liberty podcast. It's an experience like no other. <laughs> well, this show is brought to you by our friends over at Paradexo. Yep. Paradexo LLC, your yeah. healthcare automation needs. Yeah. All taken care of at one point in time. Yeah. Whatever you need. <laughs> well, uh, if you're not looking for healthcare automation, uh, then you could also be looking for this nice talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning, which is what we're about to talk about right now. Mm-hmm. So um, we have this offer. We extend it you know, on every single episode. And what we're going to do is we're going to give you three minutes. This is a bonus offer. You're going to get three minutes to hit the subscribe button. All you got to do is hit that button. And what that's going to do is it's going to send our podcast just right to your phone mm-hmm. the next time we release it. That way you don't have to worry about going to look for it, spending, wasting all that time. It's efficiency. If you care about efficiency, you'll hit subscribe. And there's nothing better than that. Yeah, time is important. Mm-hmm. It's your most valuable asset. Yeah, it is. So there's like, no reason for you to search for our show every day. I'm never going to get the time back that I spent listening to Bernie Sanders' interview on the Joe Rogan podcast. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean... I think I stomached probably about 20 minutes. Yeah, I made it... I looked... Um, I made it 32 minutes into the into the podcast before I had to stop for do the health concerns. Mm-hmm. So, and you can't get those health concerns taken care of. I can't because <laughs> so Bernie's not president, so I can't get those things so you're taken doing care a little of. Bit of self care. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a Senator. So like I, I can't, right. I can't just have all that stuff taken care of. You can't write a book and sell it, you know, a million no. dollars worth. No, all that time is gone now, but listen, I've got two pages of notes from Bernie Sanders interview on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. A great podcast, by the way. It's the biggest podcast that there is, uh, getting, what, like 150 million downloads a month, something like that? I think it's more than that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, uh, it's going to... over two... It's like, I think he's like 300 million. It's going to take a minute before we hit those kind of numbers. Yeah. <clears throat> just a little We're bit of close. time. close. Almost. We just need you out there to hit the subscribe button. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. Um, we wanted to go through his interview a little bit. We've got some sound bites cut up. Uh, been going through each one of these little comments he made, and I've just been looking up all kinds of statistics on the things that he that he was saying on that on that interview. So, I know Charlie, I actually haven't shared all of this with you yet. But I know this is going to be live reaction. I know. I love which is I like that. We'll do it live. You know. We'll, one thing I want to say is I I really like Joe Rogan's podcast a lot. He has several really good conversations. Uh, one thing I noticed in this episode, just in general, about Rogan's podcast, and I was thinking about a lot of his episodes, he doesn't tend to disagree with anyone on the show. Yeah, I guess like, not. to their face. He kind of listens I mean, he kinda, to them. He kind of grilled Alex Jones a little bit, but he's still like he, he's like yeah. considers Alex Jones a friend, um, and he's not really confrontational with with anybody. He I mean, he's had. All kinds of people on there. The most awkward one I've heard so far was when he had Roseanne Barr on there. And I had a hard time listening to that episode because she obviously has mental problems, like legit mental problems. Yeah. Um, and he's talked about that before. But he did press her on some issues. Yeah. Uh, and it was very awkward to hear her trying to figure out, you know, what to say and to kind of hear the the logic that was going on in her head. Really awkward conversation, mm-hmm. but he's had Jordan Peterson on there, and amazing conversations. Right, so good. 
the physicist um uh brian cox brian that was cox, yeah, yeah. Re- really good um he had uh maynard from uh you know perfect circle and uh uh, tool and all that. He so, had this uh, cowboy Tate or something like that on there. He's talking about like underwater cave diving. That blew my mind. <laughs> oh, seriously. But uh, I will say, like, it was weird to listen to him interviewing ba- Bernie Sanders because, like, w- when I heard him talking to Jordan Peterson, it seems like he kind of agrees a lot with a lot of the things that Jordan Peterson was talking about, which is some of the issues we have in society with gender wage gap you know all these different those kind of concerns and where the um, and where the left can go too far which is like the discussion of equity the history of socialism and communism and and all these terrible things and how ridiculous people were getting and not taking responsibility all that and then he has bernie sanders on there and he's just like yeah 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 that makes sense that's not too radical no that's not radical at all that's not radical no so that, Nothing about that's radical. <laughs> so we cut up some parts from that uh, from that podcast, and uh, we wanted to go kind of take this lie by lie, just go through it one at a time, and uh, and just kind of see where you know Bernie Sanders got a lot of traction. He's uh, polling second place pretty much all the time. Um, I think it's important because he's kind of a thought leader on the socialist left, the hardcore left. He's a pretty big thought leader. A lot of people our age, uh, you know, 30s, are big followers of his. People coming out of college, big followers of his. So that's why we spend a lot of time on BernieLies.com talking about the things that Bernie talks about and how they're actually not true. So You know that you have a bunch of articles on there. Think about how many articles can you spin off of this one podcast? Um, this is going to be a big one. I was thinking about maybe doing like one of the, the – uh, dictation things the transcript posts because there's gonna be so much information in this podcast uh because i've i've gone and pulled up statistics on like each one of the things that he talked about so um this could be one two three four five six seven eight this could be about eight articles at least Mm -hmm. so um maybe we'll do that maybe i'll do that yeah i'll do that afterwards so maybe uh without further further ado this is the first clip this is Bernie talking about his ideas, and we'll talk about whether or not now, they're look, really I, radical. I know you guys out there are going to be like, oh, I don't know if I can listen to this, but <laughs> just, you know, your ears will bleed a little bit, but you got to, this is important. You got to pay, pay attention to this kind of thing. I'm That's bad the, at, I'm bad at doing this too, but you have to know, for lack of better terms, you have to know your enemy because you have to know the points that they're bringing up and you have to have proper responses to them. Right. So you have to hear what they're saying. You have to pay attention. You That's have to, the biggest thing. You have to hear how they're saying it. Everything that he's going to do is going to be some kind of an emotional plea to get your the logic part of your brain to back down and just accept emotionally that we have to fix this. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's why we spent some time going through it. But uh, let me see. I think this is really early on in the podcast. Truth, they are really not terribly radical. They exist in many countries all over the world. For example, just we can start on healthcare if you'd like. Is the idea that health care is a human right, not a privilege, a radical idea? I don't think it is. It's not. No, and it's the not. truth is mm-hmm. we are the only major country on earth. Many people don't know this. We're the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a human right. And yet we end up spending almost twice as much per capita on health care. Func- so first off, props to Bernie Sanders because 
He's one of the only politicians out there that has finally ignored that silent H at the beginning of human. Um, You know, people have been doing this wrong for a long time. And he's, you know, down to the letter is is reminding people that that uh, human, in fact, does have a silent H at the beginning of it. So, I mean, he is, you know, he's. He's it, dotting his I's and crossing his T's as far as that goes. And silencing his H's. <laughs> so is healthcare a human right, Charlie? Um, well, it, it depends on what you mean by right. And I hate to get all like, you know, technical on you, but what's a, you know, what's a right, what's a human right? Yeah. Um, the problem with healthcare being a human right is that that means that regardless of whether or not you can pay for it, whether or not once someone wants to provide it to you, that you have a right to this service. And uh, Rand Paul did a really good job <clears throat> taking Bernie to task on this in a congressional hearing one time. Well, and- I said I asked for the definition because I think it's important to understand. I mean, we talk about this all the time, but when you talk about what your actual rights are, um, your rights are what come from your humanity. Like they're, they're natural to you, yeah. you know, like you're born with them. They're not granted, you know, like the bill of rights doesn't grant you any rights. Yeah. It's just listed there. So the government is, is supposed to protect them. And so when you talk about healthcare being a right, well then you would, you would have to say that it's, it's equivalent to you having the right to your life. Yeah. And you yeah. having the right to property ownership and you having the right to defend yourself, these inherent natural rights that come from being human or come from your creator, uh, you know, what's enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, that we have certain inalienable rights. And these are listed, they're, they're listed for us as government is supposed to protect them in the Bill of Rights, um, but the rights were never given to us by government. They're, they're inherent. They're natural. And so healthcare, it's... It's the same thing as to me as asking, like, do you have a right to food? And I don't understand how people can't make this correlation because no one out there is advocating for food as as a natural right. And as in, like, you should be able to walk into Kroger and, and just get your food, take the food you need and leave whether or not you have any money because you have a right to food. Exactly. Yeah. You can go onto my dad's farm and take any of the things that he's growing anytime you want because you have a right to food. Right. You know, that's, so that's, uh, but even really like think sense. about in human history, even before people, let's say, you know, owned farms and stuff, like you didn't have a right to any of the food. You had to put in a little bit of work. Like maybe you had to grow something or hunt something. Yeah. Well, even like a communist, you know, I guess a little community, like a commune where people are living, like everyone has to do something of value. To be able to live in the commune. Well, think about like the Native American villages and stuff. You know, you had your hunters and you had your your crop growers. You had your your witch doctor, medicine woman. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you had the people that made the blankets and the people that sewed the tents. And, you know, kids ran around and played, you know, cops and robbers. (laughs) Cowboys and Indians. Oh, oh, shoot. Cowboys (laughs) and Indians. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what robbers weren't invented yet. But so so I would argue that there's a difference with natural rights. You can say you have the right to life. But that doesn't mean that you have the right to make someone else ensure that you're going to be kept alive. Meaning that the right to life does not mean that you have the right to health care if you have some kind of disease. The right to life means that you have the right to not have your life 
forcefully taken from you right. on someone else's will. Like that's the right to life, that someone else cannot come to you and take that life from you. Right. But that does not mean that if you are uh, in trouble or dying in some kind of way, that you can go to someone else and force them to take care of you. That, that's the opposite side of that coin. So no, I'm not saying we're we're not saying that you shouldn't help take care of your fellow man because I think that's should. important. Absolutely, right? Because your family and your community, like you, should help those that are close to you. But as you mentioned, Rand Paul did an amazing job on the Senate not that long ago. Yeah, well, I guess it was a couple of years ago now. It was during Bernie's first campaign, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you know he he likened it um, to slavery, and a lot of people didn't like that. You know, they didn't like that analogy because, you know, slavery is in chains and, you know, we have a we have this view of slavery, especially in America. But when you say that you have a right to someone's services or someone's products, what you're saying is, is that you can enslave them to do your bidding. Yeah. Right. No matter no matter how good the cause is, because if you can't provide them with some kind of value that will make them that will allow them to provide that service to you voluntarily then they would still be forced to provide you with value, even if they're not receiving value back from you. Right. And so I will say there's an argument with this where, well, do- it's not like we're going to take doctors and not pay them. You know, they're in a, in a Medicare for all, they're still going to get paid. Doctors are still going to get paid. So they're not getting enslaved. So I did a video on this on our, on our good morning Liberty Facebook page where I said, yeah, the doctors are, are going to get paid, but, what I'd ask you first is, you know, look at you at your house. Like if you go out and cut down a tree and you cut cut up the wood and you fashion together yourself a nice chair that you're then going to sell to your neighbor, then does someone else have the right to come to you and say that they have a right to your chair or they have a right to your time while you're making that chair and most people would say no they don't like that's that person's time and they're making that product and they're going to sell it to their neighbor or trade value with their neighbor um so people would say yeah there's no um you don't have the right to go to that person and force him to give you his time for that chair so we're saying that doctors are still going to get paid but they're going to get paid by whom they're going to get paid by the guy that made the chair that's who's going to pay the doctor. So in one in one principle, you said, well, no, I can't go to that person's house and force them to make me a chair or to provide me with value because that's crazy. And well, yeah, we're still going to pay doctors, but we're going to pay doctors with what money? You're going to pay doctors with money that you stole from the guy that made the chair. So you're so in one way, you're saying you, you don't believe in it. And the other one, the other one you are. I also wanted to say this. We want all. We all want the same thing. That's another thing to keep in mind. I don't want anyone to die because they can't afford medical care at all. My goal is for no one to die ever, ever. Yeah. Just that's my ultimate goal. No one ever dies. You'll never achieve that. Yeah, but you know, set your sights high. <laughs> you know, ten x that. The other thing I want to mention in this first clip is what the hell, Joe Rogan? <laughs> like this is not a radical idea, and I get. I get maybe in the sense, just to give him a little bit of credit, but I feel like he should have grilled him on this as far as it being a radical idea. He should have at least asked a, a few tougher questions. And and Joe Rogan is really good at interviews, and he is he is pretty good about asking some tough questions and, and going down some different uh, paths to make people think. But 
I don't, he just came out and just agreed like, oh, this is not a radical idea. And I will say I agree in the sense of if somebody is hurting or sick or dying, it's not so radical that we, we should help our fellow man. That's not the, that's not the radical part of this idea. The radical part of this idea, if you read Bernie freaking Sanders, like his manifesto, basically like his campaign plan is he wants to eliminate private insurance, eliminate any option you could ever have for anything else and only, only have a government option. And when throughout history, when we only have a government option, is that ever not a radical idea, not a like a dangerous, radical, crazy idea? And he talks about all the other countries. They all have private health insurance options. Yeah. Like there's still a call it a privilege, if you will, but whatever, like. And a hundred years ago, healthcare didn't really exist. You, like you know, your grandmother's medicine was like alcohol, <laughs> whiskey and honey, baby. Maybe penicillin. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, some moldy bread. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like or or you know, 150 years ago, that people bled to death. Like you had bleed outs and stuff. Did everybody have a right to that kind of healthcare? Like if you go back in history and whatever, a couple hundred years ago, where you know you had the the plague or something like. <clears throat> Their their aim was to bleed out the the disease. <laughs> That's to put leeches on you and bleed you. Well, no, they would literally cut you and make you. Ble- and people died way faster. But should everybody have a right to that kind of healthcare too? Like, well, that's the what's the bringing up a good point there. That like, so how can a human being have a right to something that didn't <laughs> exist even even a hundred and fifty years ago? You're. You know, most people can probably agree that human beings have been here for like 300,000 years, 400,000, at least. Like a lot of people would say that. So how can a human being be born with the right to health care in something that in some kind of medicine that was just invented in the year 2018? Right. Like, how can you have the right to that? Yeah. You're telling me that a you're, you're telling me that a human being in 1850 didn't have a right to an MRI. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. They're they're human beings too. They have the same right. So the principle doesn't really line up, but I've got f- so I've got four clips here. Uh they're all going to be pertaining to healthcare and we can kind of do a little bit between each one of them and and then kind of have a big discussion afterwards. Well, but, uh, and real quick I wanted to say cuz you mentioned, you know, a drug that came out in 2018, you know, like this is kind of personal so I'm not going to share uh, too much about it, but you trade stocks. And so we were looking at some different stuff this morning too, some different biotechs and things like that. But you know, there's all kinds of, of clinical drug trials and things like that going on where these people where pharmaceutical companies are spending hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, um, just to get drugs approved, uh, by the FDA so they can bring them to market to help save people's lives or, or at least give them at least a better quality of life for the foreseeable future. And so they spend hundreds of millions of dollars to bring these drugs to market. And then who, who's going to pay for that? Right. I mean, this is, you're saying that you have a right to that medicine that somebody had to, well, actually not somebody, a lot of people had to spend a lot of value to create that drug for you to, for you to be able to have it. Yeah. And and then we're talking about, regardless of where, you know, they're going to get paid for doing that. And uh, having healthcare paid for by taxation is still you paying for healthcare. So the people kind of miss that point that taxes affect every single thing that you buy on a daily basis. And the question is whether or not the 
U.S. government will be able to provide things more efficiently than the private market. And our private healthcare market is is the most regulated market in in our economy. So they're they're trying to win this with both their hands tied behind their back, and and they're they're doing the best they can. All the regulations making things more expensive uh, is not really helping. But um, I've got something on Canada's healthcare costs being being half. Uh, then we got drug companies. Um, we've got uh, two things about drug companies, and then something on Medicare uh, that were all pretty good little little comments on that so let me look oh, at can't that. wait here we go that canada spends less obviously they have less people you mean less per capita yes half per capita half exactly per capita. per capita and and the quality of care is as good uh, or better do they have problems yeah they have problems everybody has problems but overall the health care uh, experts will tell you the quality of care there is as good or better than it is in our country so what's the hurdle Okay, I'll tell you exactly what the hurdle is. The hurdle is okay. So is so as right, good or better? As <laughs> good or better? Um, he's talking about uh, healthcare expenses being half as much in Canada per capita. There's one thing that I want to, and these this is really difficult to find the actual numbers on. The do you know what's so difficult about it, Charlie? Well, not only that, he's saying half per capita, and he's saying that the quality of care is just as good or better. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we'll talk about how long it takes to get that care. But but when we talk about what we spend per capita, the so the yearly health care expenditures, the number that's brought up is about three point five trillion dollars is what is what they say it costs. Now these numbers are really hard to find, and the hardest part about finding these numbers is that you have to go past the first three Google search results and keep looking past that. I had to go all the way to like page three to find some of these, which hmm. is something like no one does when they're right. searching for something. It's like one of the first two things pop up and that's all they look at. So that's why people pay so much money to be at the top of a search result. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but anyway, I had to keep digging for this. So we have our $3.5 trillion in, in expenditures on healthcare. Do you know what the actual, the actual out of pocket costs for all Americans were? Last year, out of pocket, so including their insurance deductibles, I would say half a trillion, five hundred billion. Yeah, it was three hundred and eighteen billion. Okay, I'm not too far off. So look when, at my guesstimates. By the when way. we when we're talking when we're comparing healthcare expenditures, I just want people to keep in mind that we're comparing that three point five trillion dollar number back and forth, and we're ignoring the fact that the actual out-of-pocket costs for people total $318 billion. And that's it. Because a lot of these, well, when your insurance companies are paying for it, your employers are paying for it, um, a lot of the costs are written off. And another issue in that $3.5 trillion number is that that accounts for the, the bill that the hospital sent out. You know, I have my surgery for my getting my appendix taken out, and the surgeon charged $26,000 for it. How much of that money do you think the surgeon actually got? Yeah. I mean, half? Maybe. A, a quarter? Yeah. Maybe something like that? He's probably on salary with the hospital anyway. Yeah, but so so it's important to keep in mind that that $3.5 trillion number uses the $26,000 bill that I got that that person never received. They wrote off 75% of it probably. Right. They they go with these extremely exorbitant amounts because they know so many people are not ever going to pay their bill. 
So they're starting from a really high negotiate, negotiating amount and trying to get what they can out of it. Plus, I was thinking today, a lot of the people they're sending bills to are dead, you know, yeah. are, are, are dying. They know they're never going to receive that money, you know? So, so they're, they're, they're having to raise their prices to account for all sorts of things. And I can tell you working <clears throat> in healthcare finance, there are billions of dollars <clears throat> sitting in what's called bad debt that hospitals will never receive. And I can't go into like specifics, but I can tell you that there's a thing called bad debt and everybody knows about that. And there's hundreds of millions to billions. There's definitely billions across the nation, billions of dollars sitting in bad debt that, that, you know, healthcare providers will never see. It gets written off. Now I was going to ask you, Charlie, why do you disagree with Bernie Sanders on healthcare? Like, why why is it that you feel so strongly the way that you do? Uh, the main course would be the fact that government is the most inefficient enterprise known to man. Yeah. And so, why would I trade the efficiency, the proficiency, <clears throat> the innovation? And the the top, I don't even know how to put it into words, like the top of the line system that you can possibly get. Why would I trade that? Uh, I'm not saying our healthcare system is top of the line, but I'm saying like the top of the line doctors and people that are willing to uh, innovate and create efficiencies in a free market system. Why would I trade that for something that I know the government is already terrible at? Like, I don't even like going to the DMV to get my driver's license. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't like waiting in line for sometimes hours just to get my car tested for emissions and pay a $9 fee so I can get my car registered. I don't like registering my car. But the fact that I have to get in line first, Yeah. you know, and do all that. And like, you know, look at this, look at the stats on VA care, veterans care. It's unbelievable. My grandmother died in a, in a VA hospital because the, the doctors were incompetent. And it's just like Milton, I think Milton Friedman said it best. You know, our healthcare market isn't perfect. Now, granted, it's not really free market anyway. There's We can get into all the rules and regulations. Good God. I don't even know them. I've done this now for almost seven years and I don't, I can't even tell you all the rules and regulations just surrounding health, how to collect on healthcare claims. Yeah, the, there it's, were tens of thousands of pages added in just, just after Obamacare. Right. I, I, no one really even, like, I'm an expert in this, and I can't even tell you all of the rules and regulations that you have to comply with. This is what you do on a yes. daily basis. Yeah. Like, people pay me to be an expert in this. Yeah. And I, and I can't even tell you. So I'm like, it's unbelievable the the regulation that we have on what's supposed to be a free market healthcare system. It's not. Now, I'm not saying I'm against all regulations. I'm against I'm against almost almost all of them. But we don't have a free market system to begin with. And the second thing is is that because we don't have a free market system, but well, no, I, where I was going with this was a Milton Friedman quote, what I, which which is what I love. He said, "Anytime there's a market failure, and." we think government can solve it. All we do is we transfer a market failure to a government failure. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, again, and I I feel like I need to hammer this home. There's no heaven on earth. 
There's no utopia, right? You're not going to live forever. Bad things happen. You know, people get sick. A lot of things are unfair in life. You know, it's unfair when kids get cancer. It's unfair when, you know, car accidents happen to good people. And it's unfair when a tornado hits a town or, or a hurricane or flooding or whatever. A lot of things in life are unfair. There's no utopia. The world is here to take you out. And you're going to die one day. Like, there's no living forever. And so there's going to be failures in society. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying because of that that we shouldn't work to improve things. We absolutely should. And I, humans have done an unbelievable job compared to where we were even 50 years ago. Yeah. But what you have to remember is anything that is a technical market failure, which we don't have a free market in healthcare, but let's say it is a market failure. If you give it to government to solve, all we do is transfer the failure of a market to the failure of government. It's much better to fix it in the market than it would be to give the government power to, to, try and fix it which will never happen and just becomes a government failure that's exactly that's the only thing that happens so so that was your answer to the question why do you disagree with bernie sanders on health care um now I, yeah, it had nothing to do with his looks i don't know if it had you nothing know, to do with his rhetoric i don't know if you know this or not but you're you're wrong about that you disagree with him because of uh the health care corporate lobbyists that that's why oh yeah so so here you go over the last 20 years, the drug companies alone have spent $4.5 billion in 20 years on lobbying and campaign contributions. That's what we're up against. The knowledge, and I stop, mark stop my that words, right there. within a short period of Ask yourself, just ask a simple question. Why in the world would drug companies ever spend $4.5 billion over the last 20 years why would they ever do that to lobby Congress? Like, why? Just ask yourself, Nate, why? Why would I ever lobby Congress because and they, spend a lot of money on campaign contributions? Why would I ever do that? Because they have power over the market that you're trying to what? sell in. What? <clears throat> yeah. Like, you know the brain-mind explosion emoji? <laughs> like, that's exactly what's happening. I know you can't see me right now, but like, oh my God, it's that simple. Like, it's because... Government, your senators and your congressmen have the power to write laws like the Affordable Care Act that the insurance companies wrote to introduce 10,000 regulations that do what? That benefit them. Now, if, if we want to get rid of that, you t like this is an equation. I give congressmen money. Congressmen passes laws that benefit me. So money plus congressmen equals benefits for me. Now, in that equation, what do you get rid of to get rid of benefits for me? The power that Congress has. The power that Congress has. My God, how easy is that to think about? <laughs> if the power isn't there that Congress has to write these insane laws that they constitutionally don't even have a right to, like, healthcare is mentioned nowhere in the Constitution, and the Constitution is a list of enumerated federal powers. But somehow Congress just decided, well, we got we got healthcare power now and so uh, no one's going to fight us on it and uh, if you just give me all this money and you donate to my campaign so that I stay in Washington and I, you know, increase my net worth from uh, you know, $50,000 as a mayor of Vermont all the way up to over a million 
and uh, you keep going on that, then I'm going to make sure that uh, I pass these laws that I assumed I have power for. And, uh, you know, the Supreme Court will interpret it as a tax, even though we said it was a penalty. And we're going to do all that. And you're it's going to benefit you because, uh, well, you're the insurance company and you wrote the Affordable Care Act. And so now we 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 created this huge problem and we're going to solve it by making sure that we benefit the giant corporations because they have the money to buy our campaigns and we have the the power to to give them kickbacks basically. And so well, over the last 20 years, what could we have done? Well, we could have made sure that our government, our federal government didn't have the power. And if the power doesn't exist, the money doesn't exchange hands. It never will. And I don't understand why that's a hard concept to conceptualize. Because most people got bored and clicked on the next Facebook video while you were 10 seconds into that. That's the problem. Am I not compelling enough? <laughs> I feel like I have a decent voice. No, no, you have I feel it. like I'm giving some pretty good facts. Great voice. It's just, uh, you know, people like a simple... I'm actually an... I'm actually an expert in this field. People like a simple explanation. The simplest explanation is it's not your fault. It's someone else's, and I'm going to take care of it for you, and you're not going to have to pay for it. That's the simplest explanation <clears throat> right there. Well, and that goes deeper than that even because, you know, we talk about the pursuit of meaning on here, which has everything to do with responsibility, and it's much easier to go through life without having any responsibility. It is, you I know? guess. Yeah, I, I guess. Well, it... it it, it's easier in the short term, let's say, yeah. when you're thinking about things and you're like, well, if I could just wake up and not have to do anything today, well, wouldn't that be the life? But then you do that for like even a couple of weeks and you're like, God, I'm so bored. Yeah. I need something to <clears throat> do. Let's see. Right. Last year, the top 10 drug companies made $69 billion. A week ago, I went to Canada with a number of Americans who are dealing with diabetes. Actually, we'll just stop right there. So... Last year, the top 10 drug companies, we always got to do thing in ten, do things in 10s and 20s because one is not impressive enough, I guess, unless you're talking about Amazon or Walmart. But last <laughs> year, the top 10 drug companies made $69 billion. So I, 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 now that was $69 billion in net profit, actual net profit. So I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to mention this real quick, that... That $69 billion, um, if you look at those numbers, with the, which the numbers that Bernie Sanders is using, which is the $3.5 the $3 trillion in, in uh, health care expenses last year alone. So when you take that figure, $69 billion is actually uh, only about 0.01% percent of the expenditures on healthcare 0.01%. It's actually one it's actually 1/10,000 of the expenditures. Literally Elizabeth Warren is more Native American than insurance companies profit was a portion of healthcare pharmaceutical expenses companies. last year. Yeah, yeah, pharmaceutical companies profits. <laughs> so and and that 69 billion we're led to believe that this is why healthcare is unaffordable. Well, that that profit, that evil evil profit. Although he's not a communist, guys. That evil evil. He's, he's not radical. Not not radical at all. That evil terrible profit 
when you just look at the amount of people that are in the United States, that only comes out to $197 per person. That's it. And profit mm-hmm. that all of the, the top 10 pharmaceutical companies made off of people in the U.S. last year. $197. Now, no one's really that broke due to $197 that they had to spend. You spend $120, 130-something dollars on Netflix every single year. So first off, your uh, Charlie spends like six hundred dollars on Netflix every single year. Apparently, I saw your Netflix bill. Good lord! I don't. You got I the Diamond Club membership. I didn't understand what they were. <laughs> they're good at marketing. They just sold you on it. They're like, hey, you want some ultra, <laughs> like ultra HD or whatever, you know? Yeah, sure. I'll get ultra HD. That sounds yeah. great. Why not? So. It's like I can't see. I can only see one nose hair. I want to see eight. <laughs> the pro- <laughs> the the profit off from those drug companies is is like nothing in comparison to the expenses that were in the healthcare industry. That that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to get at here. So he likes to use these big numbers, and the problem is when you take a number like sixty nine billion dollars and you take into account that there's over three hundred million people in the United States alone, it's they're making. Yeah, they're making good money off of, you know, per person in the United States. But no one's life is going to be changed if we take away the what's that $15 a month that the that the pharmaceutical companies must be making off of every person in the United States. Now, I will say that we're skewing the statistics a little bit because not every are, single person used the the uh, Well, like me, I don't have monthly yeah. prescription drugs, you yeah. know, like I so far I've been lucky enough that I don't Really, I mean, I buy, I have, like, I buy Tylenol and ibuprofen, and I got like my kids Motrin. Yeah, and you know, like, now sometimes, there's prescription drug. There's drug companies that own those. Oh, I know, but I, I don't like my monthly cost probably wouldn't be even close to fifteen dollars. Yeah, you know, because like a bottle of Tylenol will last me at least two weeks. Yeah, at least <laughs> whole bottle. Right. How's your liver, by the way? Oh, it seems. Last time I checked, everything was good. <laughs> So uh, I, I had this, I was reading this article earlier, doing this research, and they were talking about these medicines that, well, you might pay $2,000 for it in the UK, or you pay 4000 for it in America, or the costs are twice as much in Canada than they are in the United States. So I was just doing some thinking on this earlier. Let's break it down to like a super simple number. Let's say that you manufacture a drug and it costs you it costs you $3,000 to manufacture a drug. And the reason, reason I'm using that is because of the expense, the expense number. That is that an actual statistic. But let's say it costs $3,000 to manufacture a drug. And you're a drug company based out of Nashville. And uh, you're selling to one person in the United States and one person in Canada. Now, you got to get that $3,000 back at least. You, you need to so you can keep going. Um, what Canada does and what all these other countries do that Bernie points to is they actually negotiate and regulate the prices that you're allowed to sell drugs for in those countries. So they, what Canada will do, now you're the person who manufactured the drug for $3,000 and you're going to sell it to the U.S. and Canada, one person in each country. What Canada will do is they'll set a cap and they'll say, we're not going to pay more than $1,000 for that drug. Um, you can sell it here if you want to, but we're not going to pay you more than $1,000. Now, you need to recoup 3000 So here's what happened. 
You were going to sell to one person in the U.S. and one person in Canada. Canada sets a cap at 1000 What do you have to charge the person in the U.S. to get your money back? At least double. At least double. So you got to charge one thousand person because that one thousand to the person in Canada because that's the law that's the cap on the drug, and now you've got to charge two thousand in the United States to try and get your money back. So I was looking at why some of these companies that are based in the United States and that are selling drugs all around the world, why the the prices must be so different, and the problem is that the people in the U.S. are suffering from the price controls in other countries. That's that's one of the things one that's happening. That's one of the problems. One of right. like 8,000 problems or that more. there are. But one of the things that happens is those countries set a max on what they're going to pay for it, and you need to recoup what is an average of $2.5 billion that, of, for a drug that's actually allowed to come to market. And so now you've got a cap in one country and no cap in another country. So what's going to happen is you'll accept that cap in that country, and then you're just going to make up the difference in the one that doesn't have a cap. Well, Nate, I mean, the easy solution here is we just have to cap the drug prices in the United States of America. And there's the problem, because if you have to recoup a certain amount of money, now the minimum amount for well, a your drug, answer should be here. If you cap the United States, too, then the, the companies just go out of business. Yeah, they're just not going to make no the point. drug. There's no point to make the drug. These are people that are working, that are investing for a living. They're creating something that people can buy that is thankfully going to save a lot of lives. But if they are going to consistently lose money every single, every single time they do it, then they're not going to be in business for very long. So that, and even in Canada, they, they have private, a private prescription drug market. You're, you don't get free prescription drugs in Canada. You still have to pay for it, but they set a cap on it. So what, what's going to happen is these people are just going to, they're going to stop making the drugs. Um, so you get people with money that want to invest in something and you're going to say, well, do you want to invest in, you want to invest in Amazon or do you want to invest in this drug trial? Well, what I see is that uh, drug companies never make money because we've instituted price controls on them. We've, <laughs> we've done something on the cost of their drugs. We've made their drug extremely expensive, very expensive to bring to market, and we're going to set a cap on the amount of money that they can, that they can charge for it. We're going to set a, a minimum amount that they're going to pay for it, but then we're going to set a maximum amount that they can recoup. So that, that's going to narrow the market and take a lot of people out of it. The, uh, the, the minimum for a drug company, uh, you will expect to pay at least $350 million for every, every single drug. The minimum that anyone ever pays is $350 million to bring the drug to market. And what normally happens is you'll, you'll go through 10 different drugs and drug, tile, drug trials, and you'll get, you'll get one of them out there. Which means now you went through ten. They were minimum three hundred fifty million. You're going to pay three point five billion dollars, and you're going to get one drug out out to market. And now you've got to recoup the money from all of those other drugs that failed off of the one. Then you've got a country that sets a cap on what you can allow to get, and now you're going to have to make up that difference from the other country. So it's it's not as easy as we're just going to pay for all this, and your life is going to be great. No, it's, it's not the answer. <clears throat> I want to say two things about all of this. The first thing is there are some what what he's like evil greedy capitalists out there like the guy who with the EpiPen or whatever because they have a patent on the they don't have a, a patent on epinephrine because it's a it's a natural 
thing your body produces and it's very cheap for for everybody to make like if you got epinephrine with a syringe it wouldn't cost you hardly anything yeah but the EpiPen is what costs a lot of money because they have a patent and they keep changing it on the actual delivery system delivery system of of that uh epinephrine and so like the guy who did that and jacked it up sure whatever but i will also say a girl that did that or a girl yeah uh but i will also say what other drugs did that company try to invent that never went to market that they got to pay for yeah right so like you're trying to offset offset your losses by charging extra for something that technically you shouldn't cost that much but because you went through all of these losses you have to try to recoup that somehow the second thing i will say is that drug prices are way too high in america i mean especially for people my dad is diabetic he's a double amputee he is on uh, medicare disability uh, he did pay into medicare all of his life so it's not like he's getting it for free you know he worked he was a mud engineer and he was in the navy and he you know he worked for 30 i think yeah a little over 30 years 30 plus years paid into all of these systems so he's on you know medicare disability um he still has private insurance disability that he had um and then so he his medical expenses are covered uh through the medicare disability but through his his prescription drugs he has to get uh, uh medicare part d which is supplemental and there's a cap on that by the way they don't cover all your prescription drugs and so my dad, we were having a conversation when I went to visit him last. He is like literally trying to strategically purchase his drugs because by the time that the cap is done on his allotment to buy drugs, he still owes like another two or three thousand dollars just to keep up with his insulin every month, and that's way too much money on top of all the other drugs that he has to take. Now, that's way too much money. But what Nate is talking about, and what I'm talking about, the solution to this is not to cap drug prices, not to hand everything over to the government and say, take care of us. And the the real solution to this would be to get rid of all the barriers that make it cost so, so, so much of a ridiculous amount of money to produce drugs and to do dr- uh, clinical drug mm-hmm. trials and all the FDA regulations, the 10,000, 20,000 regulations that these drug companies have to comply with so that they can get their drugs to market cheaper than two and a half or three and a half billion dollars and the 10 years it takes to research all of that. If we can get those drugs to market cheaper with a more free market system, then insulin wouldn't cost 10 grand a month. Yeah. I mean, you're just... You're just, you don't care about people, Charlie. I mean, well, I, mean I care just, about my dad, obviously, yeah. you know, like it's, it's my dad. Not as much as you care about profits. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, clearly I'm, I'm all about <laughs> profits. Speaking of Medicare. That's what FDR was talking about. Harry Truman was talking about it. Kennedy was talking about it. Kennedy got killed. Lyndon Johnson picked up the mantle and, and their idea was, according to people in their administration, we'll start with the elderly who are most impacted by, by healthcare costs and sickness will start, and they did. In 1965, without the technology we have today, they implemented Medicare. 19 million people, elderly people, signed up in the first year. So it- so I wanted to talk about the implementation of Medicare. There's Medicare, whether you like it or not, and if you're living on it right now, you probably like it. It might be, might be about your only, your only option, plus it's something that you probably paid into your entire life. Uh, my counter argument to that would be you've probably received more money and benefits than you ever paid into it more more than likely 
but I I would or, say or how much money you could have if you were able to yeah, invest if you that yourself save for that, your own medical save that on your own for your medical costs yeah so I was looking at some graphs some charts and graphs of health of healthcare costs in the United States over a yearly timeline the it is insane to watch the cost line once it hits the early 1960s it skyrockets it's just yeah kind of going up kind of going up kind of going up early 60s just starts shooting up like crazy healthcare costs mm-hmm. and what happened in the early early 60s oh medicare 60s. medicare was passed medicare government paying for healthcare and then healthcare mm-hmm. so so i took the graph i looked at this is really not me cherry picking a range of dates this is the graph that i was looking at um so in the 30 years before the passage in the 30 years before the passage of medicare healthcare costs for uh for each person they had increased by 100% they had doubled they'd increased by 100% in 30 years before medicare in the 30 years after Medicare, the costs for everyone have gone up 400%. So they've gone up a, a crazy amount. <laughs> the, the costs were already going up. But when you introduce government money into the equation, and one of my favorite things, the uh, Milton Friedman's price quadrant, when, when you introduced some, you using someone else's money for someone else, uh, the the expenditures just shot up like crazy, and we we could spend a whole week going into why me, why Medicare has raised the prices of of healthcare. Well, there's a very but, easy answer for that though. So it's basic supply and demand. Yeah, true. Because true. there's only so much healthcare that you can give, and when the market is flooded with an unlimited purchasing amount, you can look at this in uh, student loan debt. You can look at it in any other factor of the market, you always made a good analogy. Like if the government gave everybody twenty thousand dollars to buy a new Mustang, well, the cost of a Mustang would go up to forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. Yeah. Why? Because you have so much demand for few supply that they have to incre- try to increase the supply, and and then add on top of that the restrictions. I'm not saying that doctors and nurses and people like that shouldn't have licenses, but you look at the restrictions it costs to be a physician and to and to own a hospital. I mean, HCA can't even open up another hospital because their government stops them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like you have a private company willing, willing to spend their own money to actually add another healthcare facility to meet the demand. And they are in a court battle for seven years to prove that the demand exists because a competitor can say, well, there isn't one. Like it's insane. Yeah. It's insane. If you're in Tennessee, uh, like we are here, just know that if you feel like you need a hospital in your area, there is something called a certificate of need that the hospital has to do. The hospital company has to get permission from the government to open a hospital. And in that permission gathering, the competitor in the area can challenge you in court to say that there is not enough need for your hospital to be there. So you can't just go open up a new emergency room or a new walk-in or or anything like that. You have to get approval from the government to do it. And a lot of times you have to go through a two-year-long court battle to be able to open your hospital. There's millions upon millions of dollars in built-in cost before you ever open the building. 
But I'd like to be the law firm on that case. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm sure they're giving money to the right politicians. Right. So the, and then back on Medicare, um, one thing that I did not know about Medicare until, um, you know, I was talking to someone very close to me who's a financial analyst uh, for a healthcare company, is that basically she'll always say Medicare sets the standard. Like that's what yeah, payments the same are, thing. That's yep. what payments are based on mm-hmm. is is what Medicare will pay for something. And one of the craziest things that I did not know was that you get what's called a I believe a DRG code. Yep. Um so when you go in for some kind of event, maybe it's a heart attack and you go in and you get up your heart attack Medicare DRG code. Now if you have to go through Anything else while you're there at the hospital that is other different kind of events, event codes, maybe you have a stroke, maybe you got to have, uh, maybe you got to have your arteries, you know, unclogged or whatever you got to do. Right. Um, if you go through anything else while you're there, Medicare will only pay for one thing, mm-hmm. one thing in your visit. Have you ever wondered why when you go to the doctor and they say, well, we need to have you come back in for a, for a x-ray or we need to have you come back in for an MRI or, or you know, we can come back in and do some tests, things like that. The reason they have you repeatedly coming back in is because Medicare will only pay for one event per visit. It doesn't matter if you're there for a month because you keep having more and more complications. They'll pay for one thing. That's it, which I did not know was the case. You want to know something crazy? trust me, it's the case. You want to know something crazier than that? What's that? Well, it kind of coincides with that. So... That DRG that you get, which is your diagnosis code, and there's procedure codes and there's all kinds of other codes. Like it's absolutely insane. We don't have to get too technical about it, but you come in on Medicare, you get a DRG, which is a diagnosis code indicator that kind of tells Medicare what you're billing for, and they have all these stand. It's the standard. You can't make up your own diagnosis. You know, you have to follow these standard procedures, and so you come in for whatever diagnosis it is. Maybe let's say you broke your left arm. Right. Or you had a stroke or you had a heart attack, whatever it is. Or let's say you came in. Here's a, here's a better example. Let's say you came in for COPD. Right. Which is a, a, a respiratory disease that most people get from smoking or you can get from working in coal mines or something like that. Let's say you came in because you were a smoker and you got COPD. And so they they bill Medicare for that. And let's say two weeks uh, you come back again, and it's for the same issue, COPD. Well, Medicare has a rule that if you come in with a diagnosis and you come in within 30 days, if you come back to that hospital within 30 days uh, with the same diagnosis, they won't even pay for it. Yeah. Because it's somehow the facility's fault. Even though, and this is a good example because smokers or people that are diabetic or whatever, even if the patient did not follow the proper discharge orders, like all right, you have COPD, you can't breathe, you should quit smoking. Like, I'm ordering you as a doctor, as your physician, if you want to live, you must stop smoking. The patient leaves the hospital, smokes for two weeks again, and comes back to the hospital with COPD again, and Medicare's just like, we're not paying for it. Yeah. It doesn't matter if the patient followed their orders or not. They're just not, they're just like... In what realm, in like what other service industry or product industry or whatever, can you just be like, well, yeah, same thing. It's like just not paying for it. It's like double jeopardy only for Medicare medical diagnosis. It's absolutely insane. (laughs) So in that, 
um, what I was saying were like, they'll only pay for one thing or they won't pay if you come back in. What's happened to the pricing now is that the pricing now has to cover all kinds of different things since they're only going to get paid for one thing. They're only going to get paid one time. That one thing has to cost enough money that they can pay for all the expenses that you're probably also going to have that they're not going to get paid for. <coughs> and the problem is now that Medicare says they'll pay $50,000 for something, well, in this market, this is kind of the inefficiency of just uh, letting, letting there be free money available for something. In the market, what's going to happen is gradually the price that other people pay will hit that $50,000 mark now. It's, it's as if... Uh, it, it's as if you were you were making a car, and you had someone come in and say, you know what, I'm gonna pay you. Let's say that your car that you're making actually costs you about two thousand dollars to make. Someone comes in and say, well, I'm gonna give you fifty thousand dollars for this car, and I'll pay you. And I'm the government. I'm gonna give you fifty thousand dollars for it. Well, over time, you know, maybe beforehand you were gonna get an assembly line, or you were gonna get. Uh, a bunch more employees, or maybe you were going to find more efficient ways to do things. So it took you less time to make the car because it cost you $2,000 and you were hoping you could maybe sell it for 3000 or maybe you can get the cost down below $2,000 if you keep getting more and more efficient all the time. Well, what happens is when they come in and say, we're going to pay fifty grand for this, well, your inefficiency can go to the point to where it just needs to cost you less than fifty grand to make the car. Whereas in the actual free market, which we don't have in healthcare, you would have been incentivized to become more and more efficient, to keep finding ways that you can innovate and cut costs and make things more efficient and cheaper and get the prices down. Now, the problem is when you just have free money where people just say, we'll pay this for this all the time and it's government money, so we're, we know we can forcefully take it from people. Well, then what happens in that market is that the productivity level generally rises to where things cost $50,000 now, or maybe they should have cost 2000 And so it affects everyone who doesn't have Medicare. Uh, it affects everyone who doesn't have insurance all the time. That's why if you don't have insurance, things are insanely expensive. Well, that's why that's because most of the time they can charge that and insurance will pay it or Medicare will pay it. But if you didn't know this, let me tell you, you can get cash uh, discounts. You just have to oh, ask. Yeah. You have to ask your provider. They're not going to give you like a list, but like the other day, I went to get some lab work done, and I'm like, "Hey, uh, what's the best cash prices for the different labs that you can send this to?" And they came back with like one was like two hundred something dollars, another one was like one hundred and seventy, and then they found a lab for thirty eight bucks. Yeah. I was, oh, the same exact test, same results, thirty eight dollars. I'll pay that. Yeah. Let me pay that, not the two hundred and something. Dollar price. I didn't have any um, insurance a couple of years ago when I had my uh, surgery to have a tendon repaired, and I had to have an MRI. And MRI, you're like, oh my god, that's a few thousand bucks. That's what they're going to charge five grand. No, it was two hundred and fifty dollars cash. Hmm. The cash price. Nice. Not that bad. Not not that bad at all. You had to search a little bit for it, but. Um, I mean, it was the first place I went to. That's just oh, what really? Said. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was. I guess pretty standard. It was out in Spring Hill, a little bit of a drive from town. Right. But um, so I was going to try to round out the the medical talk a little bit, and this, you know, humans humans are dealing with a pretty new problem, which we talked about a couple other times this week, in the fact that we only used to live for like fifty years. 
Mm-hmm. And so as our life expect- expectancy has raised and raised and raised, we keep finding all these new diseases that we're going to have, all these new things that people didn't used to get that much. Um, so as that happens, it's it's expected that the out of that that the money that people spend on healthcare will keep rising the longer amount of time that people are alive because if you're going to compare the amount um you know adjusted for inflation that people spent on healthcare in 1930 well then you have to take into account the fact that there was hardly anyone that was more than 60 years old and so really what you'd have to do if you're going to compare the costs between then and now is you need to remove everyone from the equation that is above 60 or above 65 because you're skewing their results because as you get older, your healthcare costs grow and grow. So already we're dealing with a skewed statistic where we're, we're comparing a population that is different ages. And that also goes, by the way, between different countries. When you're comparing two countries together, you have to take into account what portion of their population is elderly what portion of their population are you know newborns what portion of their population is are in their 30s and 40s which are when they're they tend to be maybe in the 20s where they tend to be the most healthy you know you can't just compare money because every single country has different age demographics there's there's really big differences in that and then man you gotta be kidding me the stupid uh, healthcare bill collector just keeps calling me <laughs> Man, perfect timing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you have to compare. You have to compare accurate things. And another thing, one statistic I looked up earlier, is you don't just have to compare age demographics. When comparing the U.S. and Canada, you have to compare our likelihood of getting different diseases, because different things cost more money. Like heart disease, which is like the number one killer of everyone all among mm-hmm. all around the world. Um, things like heart disease that can be the most amount of money spent on medical care would be care for you know different coronary diseases. Well, one thing I was looking at is that the United States, our rate of coronary disease per capita, is we have 20% more people getting heart disease in, in America than in Canada per 100,000 people. They just have smaller hearts in Canada. I, mean, I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> Meaning that what if your population is less healthy? What if a gigantic portion, no pun intended, what if a gigantic portion of your population is gigantic? Yeah. You know, what, what are the... Obe- which leads to Which to leads to all kinds of problems. It leads to hip and knee replacements and, and things like that. You know, diabetes, all, all kinds of different stuff. So what if a large portion of America's population is very obese compared to the portion of the population in Canada that's obese? So you can't just compare you know, one, one country next to another without taking into account all of the different variables in the equation. What percentage of their population is getting heart disease? What percentage of their population is obese? What percentage of their population is elderly? What percentage of the population is in their 20s? So you can't just put the two right next to each other. It drives me nuts. We haven't even got to like talking about long wait times or anything like that. No, no, we haven't got to. I'm I'm only halfway through my list right now. I know. By the way, I wanted to I wanted to talk about this really quick because you know we're dealing. You talk about dealing with a new problem. Um, let's. I just did the math on this. It is. Um, sorry, I just did the math, but 
I forgot what it was. It is uh, 72%. So 72% of all new cancers happen to people age 55 or older. Mm. Okay. So you think about, we talked about this 100 years ago, you didn't even live to be 55. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah. So really it was only, you know, 20... 28% 28% of the population that actually got cancer as as compared or 28 new cancer well that's the that's the wrong thing to say <laughs> but let's it was there was a 72% reduction in cancer diagnosis but but even then we didn't know what cancer was too so there there's all kinds of technological advances but like maybe you didn't live to 55 because you did have cancer we didn't know it was cancer yeah but it's like but now we do know that it is cancer and, there, and we have a lot of things that are that are treatable you know, well, so it's like it, it, it's like you said, it's new problems that we're, that we're having along with all kinds of other problems. There's a massive it's a massive problem and it's complicated as hell. And to think that you can fix it with just a, a Medicare for all solution, it doesn't fix anything. And he even admitted like Canada has problems like every healthcare care, com- yeah. every health care coverage or every country has problems with health care. These are ridiculously hard problems to solve. But it's like if you compare a universal healthcare system versus a free market private system, the free market wins every time. And what people are confused about, I think mostly, is that we don't have a free market healthcare system. No, not it's at all. Not even close. No. And then we haven't had one since, you know, circa 1964. Before, well, yeah, it's way before that. Way but before that, but I'm saying definitely, it really changed yeah. then. Well, so. I have some other quotes here. We're gonna we can, we're gonna talk about the rich here for a minute. The evil one percent. We got to talk about those guys because those are the enemy. So we need to make sure that we pinpoint them and destroy them. Today, in America, you got three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of the American society. You don't see that on television too much, do you? No, you don't. Three people. You got the top 1% owning more wealth than the bottom 92%. Listen to this. This is a statistic we recently saw. came from the Federal Reserve. Over the last 30 years, the top 1% has seen a $21 trillion increase in their wealth. The bottom half of America has seen a $900 billion decline in their wealth. So what you have it. Stop traffic. We got a new statistic from the Federal Reserve. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, a couple things there. He does a really good job of going into the somber voice. Oh, yeah. He's like, let me tell you, Joe, this is this is real sad here. But but uh, three people own yeah. more wealth than the bottom 50 percent. Well, that was actually then. The, um, yeah. Yeah. Bottom 50. Yeah. 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 Like, well, first of all, he's in the top one percent. And then who who does he think he's talking to? Yeah. Probably, like, like Joe, know. like Joe Rogan. You're pretty close. You're not one of the three people, but you're probably pretty close in the, like the top point one percent at least. Yeah, I mean, what is Joe Rogan worth? Like, it's got to be a hundred somewhere plus in the millions. Million. I'm sure it's, it's got to be a crazy amount. It has to be a hundred plus million. I wanted to talk about that. Top three people own more wealth. Just that, just that sentence right there. What does it mean to own wealth? I put those in quotes in my notes because I think people have a massive misunderstanding about what it means to own wealth. Obviously, at the top of that is probably going to be uh, Jeff Bezos. Um, we'll just say I don't know who the three are. We'll say Jeff Bezos, 
um, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. I'll just say those guys right there. Um, what does it mean to own wealth? I think the misunderstanding is that these three people have actual physical money in their bank accounts, and that physical money that these people have is more than the bottom 50% of the country have. And the reason you have to make a you have to make this stipulation is that Jeff Bezos is so wealthy because he owns a percentage of Amazon. And and that that money does not actually exist in his bank account. He owns a percentage of a company. That that's it. There's a big difference in owning stock in a company that you started and actually having $150 billion in your bank account. There's mm -hmm. a really big difference in that. Now, Especially your offshore bank account. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, these guys, you, you think maybe, well, they could just, we, they'll sell their shares, and they can sell small chunks of their shares every once in a while. But you have to think, if you have $150 billion worth of stock, who are you going to sell that to? You're the richest person in the world. Who are you going to sell your stock to? When he goes to sell his 18% of Amazon, the price of Amazon is going to absolutely plummet at that time because he's going to flood the stock market with a supply of new shares that were not previous, previously available because stocks have a fixed amount of shares. That's why the price goes up and down on them because they have a, they have a fixed amount of shares. So he's going to flood the market with a supply of new shares and the price is going to plummet because right now the price is based on the amount of shares that are currently available for purchase. Whenever he floods the market with 18% more shares, actually at that point in time, considering what percentage they have available, it would probably be like 50% more shares available now. Then the price is going to readjust to what the price you know per available share used to be. So it's going to plummet at that point in time. He can't just cash in $150 billion. It's not even that much anyway, because Amazon's been, like the rest of the market, has been tanking a bunch. We just talked about how Bezos lost $3.4 billion on Monday. So there's a big difference in owning wealth. And These, well, part of that reason is probably because he cashed out $990 million. Yeah. So he did sell, he did quite, sell a, quite a few shares. A big portion of it, yeah. yeah. But he can't do it all at one time. Now, who buys those shares? Um, well, you do. How? Because I just have a 401k, man. Well, Charlie, did you know that your 401k is in fact invested in the stock market? How? Well, when they take your money, they then take it and put it in the companies that they think are going to increase in value so they can give you a nice return when you're ready to retire. Oh, I thought Meaning it just... I thought 401k is like a like a growing account. Yeah, you just put it in there and the money just goes up, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. There's so they, a new song we heard called Money. Yeah, yeah. I hope money grows on <laughs> trees right. or something. Yeah. So um yeah, so they they uh they put your money that 401k, you put it in there and then that 401k goes into different companies and as those companies increase in value, your 401k goes up. So it's a pretty nice deal really. Actually half of the country has money in the stock market. Half of our country. That's not just the evil rich one percent that are in the stock market. It's your mom's, uh, you know, teacher pension. It's mm -hmm. your dad's, you know, policeman's pension. It's your four hundred one k. It's uh, your Roth IRA that you have. It's all. It's all those things. It's your tiny little Robinhood account that you have. 
It's all that stuff. So when you talk about the three people owning more wealth, well, they own that wealth simply because they started these companies and those companies have become very valuable. Now that value of, of those companies represents value that those companies have provided to people in the country. You get a value when you get the shop on Amazon and you get to get your product in two days with free shipping. And then you have different TV shows that they release on their Prime Video and all that kind of stuff. You get value from Amazon in that. Maybe they're not sending you money, but you are saying that by using their services, you do value their services or else you wouldn't be using them. So I don't like to think about this idea that you know they're somehow holding this money in their bank accounts and they're not going to let anyone have it or anything like that. Mm -hmm. They're hoarding their wealth, you know? Um, and then he said, what the top 1% owns more than was it the bottom 92% something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's still the same, still the same thing. Like the, these people don't just have that money in their accounts. This is a representation of the percentage of the companies that they own. And even with Amazon where Amazon's worth a trillion dollars, Amazon has made nowhere near a trillion dollars, which will get, We'll, uh, we'll get to here in a couple clips. But um, Amazon has not made a trillion dollars. They're worth a trillion dollars simply because people who are putting money in the stock market have decided to pay a certain price for their shares. And that's it. So when you look at the money that Bezos is worth, it's not even money from profit. It's not like he sucked all that money in profit out of our, out of our market or anything. It's just, an it's just people who have put their money into investment into his company because they think he's going to keep returning value. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, people really have to make these these differences between just like the Walton family, you know, worth 150 billion for the whole family. I don't know we got to lump together a whole family and say what they're worth, but they're worth 150 billion dollars and that's because they own 51% of Walmart, you know? That, that's why they're worth all that money. It's not cuz all that money's sitting in the bank and so got to make that. So he said, um, what, the top 1%, their wealth has increased by $21 trillion over the last 30 years. I don't know why he picked a 30-year statistic. We'll have to look at that. So over the, maybe he looked at the same graph I did earlier. But he, uh, he said that over the 30 years, the top 1%, their wealth has increased by $21 trillion. And then the bottom 50% over that same time has seen a $900 billion decline. 700 billion, but... Well, whatever the billion-dollar mm -hmm. decline it was. Mm -hmm. So, first off, that's a very strict representation of the fact that the wealth that the 1% is growing is not directly taking money away from the bottom 50, or else their, uh, their wealth would have decreased by $21 trillion. Right. First off. Negative $21 trillion. Yeah. So... Think about what this means, because the people in the 1% are people that own businesses that provide services and products to people. And so what's happening is people who are providing products and services to people, their wealth is increasing because people are using it. And then the people that are buying those products and services, their wealth, their assets are decreasing. I think a lot of that has to do with us all thinking that we can just live beyond our means all the time. That's one part By of the it. way, we're taking out credit cards, taking out loans for cars that we don't need, getting too big of a house all the time, you know, eating out when we should have been eating ramen because that's what our that's what our bank account said we should have been doing, living on credit all the time. So these people just keep taking out more and more debt all the time. 
uh, because they're living above their means. That's what taking out debt means. Yeah, and by I the look, way. if you look at the usdebtclock.org, it even calculates like how much debt per family. Uh, I think the average savings per family was around five thousand. The average debt per family was like sixty thousand. Yeah, so yeah, that's a pretty right. big difference. <clears throat> yeah. Another thing I want to do, I did some quick math just now to debunk this. And this is like really something really simple to think about. If you make $50,000 a year, which would put you in the bottom 50%, you make $50,000 a year, $1,000 is a lot of money to you, right? But you decide to take that $1,000 and you're going to invest it in the stock market, okay? Now, on the average 5.5% return over one year, being in the market, which is what's happened. Uh, I would, uh, it's been the latest, what would you say, trend yeah. um, over the last, since the last collapse. Uh, so on average, 5.5% return per year. You took that $1,000 into the market. You're getting 5.5% return on that. That's $55 to your name. <laughs> now I'm in the top 1% and you know I make $10 million a year. And so that affords me a lot of things. And so I can afford to invest a million dollars into that stock market. Now, over that same year at 5.5% average, like we're just in the index here, um, I'm going to make $55,000 off that investment. So that is $49,945 more than the guy who made $50,000 and only put $1,000 in the stock market. Yeah. So this is like... When you talk about, I know this is this is a little bit of a difficult concept to understand. If you do the simple math, it, it makes more sense. But there's a thing called the Pareto distribution, right? If you have more money to invest, you can make more money off that investment Yeah. versus if you're in the bottom working your way up. Now, if you keep making that, you know, $55 and then you, now you have $1,055 invested and you're going to get 5.5% again the next year. So you're going to get, you know, even more money. You're going to get like and $57 or whatever. And then you keep putting that in. Like eventually you, you'll make it up to 10, 20, $30,000. So then when you invest, you know, $30,000 at 5%, you're going to make $600. You know, it's a lot more than the 55 you made in only a thousand. Yeah. So it's like the people that are, that are at the bottom, let's say it's not that they can't work their way up, but it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult um, to do because the return on your investment is a percentage of what you invested. And it's like, and it's not, it's not that nobody can do it because look at the richest guy in the world right now. Jeff Bezos started Amazon seven, 18 years ago as a bookstore in his house and his garage where he was, what was he making? Like 50 grand a year or something like that. It was like nothing. Something like that. Yeah. And he decided to, he had this crazy idea to take advantage of this new thing called the internet. And he started as a book reseller basically, and then turned it into what it turned into. So, so a guy making 50 grand a year who only would have made a $55 return. Now he's got $150, $150 billion invested. Yeah. And so when his stock prices move up, he, he makes what, $240 million an hour in his net wealth, his net worth. And when it goes down 1,600 points like it did on Monday, he loses $3.4 billion in a day yeah. or $475 million an hour. Yeah. So it, you're dealing with much larger numbers, even though the percentage is the same. To me, that's an easy concept to understand 
And so your goal in life, if you want to be part of the top 1%, is not complain that they've got it. You figure out the formula to get more money to invest more and have your money working for you. Well, I know a good way that you can just make more money. You you want to know what it is? Steal it? Yeah. Secondly, just raise the minimum wage. Then, oh, you'll, make, yeah. then you'll make more money. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we should or do. Or is it there are entry-level positions for high school kids, for people that are just getting their feet wet in the marketplace, they're learning how to work, they're, learn, they're, they're making some money after school, that they that if you charge or if businesses have to pay $15 an hour to people like that, to, to entry-level people, that they won't be able to stay open? Well, first of all, they will be competing against, you know, if you're a business and I'm a business, and both of us have to raise our wages at the same level, we both have the same burden. So it's, it, right. it's spread across. That, okay, okay, no. <laughs> well, hang on, though. <laughs> Well, let's take that. Let's take that to the bank here. Okay. If that's the case, why is it just fifteen? If businesses are, they're all going to have to pay the same, and we're all going to yeah. be competing with each other. Why not just make it a hundred dollars an hour? I don't know why. To make everybody's lives just easier. Not sure. I don't, why don't they do that in Venezuela? People are starving to death and stuff. They just raise their minimum wage down there. They should have done that. Yeah, man. If we could only get some of them to organize. And then, like, you wouldn't even need government health care because everybody could afford their own health care. Yeah. Then, like, <laughs> this whole conversation would be mute. So, exactly. Or moot. It would be a moot. Exactly what you're saying right there is pretty much a, it's pretty much what I wrote down. But he said if both companies have to pay the same $15 amount, then they both have the same burden. He said burden. Um, then they both have the same burden. Well, no... No, they don't. And this is the part that Charlie was getting at here, and that you can't raise the rate to $100 an hour because not everyone can afford to pay $100 an hour. Some businesses might be able to, and most businesses would not be able to. And so the idea that you can raise the wage to $15 an hour and both and all companies are going to be sharing the same burden only works if they all have these same profit margins and the same prices and the same markets that they're dealing with. The same in. expenses. The, the same, same expenses. Products. All that. So the problem is that you might have your own little grocery store somewhere where you're paying people $11 an hour and on average you're making like a dollar an hour off of them from their productivity because maybe you can get $12 an hour out of them while you're paying them 11 and maybe Kroger can... You know, they're going to pay them $11 an hour, and maybe they're getting like $16 an hour in productivity out of them because they got way more customers. Or maybe they've got so much inventory that their costs are, are a lot further down. So the idea that if you just make both of those companies pay the same amount of money, that they're both going to have the same burden, doesn't work. Because in the case of the one grocery store that was only getting $12 an hour in productivity off their workers, and now you're forcing them to pay $15 an hour. And then you have Kroger, who maybe they're getting 16 an hour off of their workers, and they're going to pay 15. Well, guess what? They're, they're still profitable, and the other company isn't. So they're not sharing the same burden mm -mm. at all. Not all, even close. Like every single company has a different profit margin that they're working on, a different amount of expenses and incomes that they're working on. In every town, in every county, in every state, they've all got different variations in their market. So it is ridiculous to think that you can set a price that they can all afford to pay without, of course, all of them raising 
the cost of their products the same percentage that they have to raise their wages. Uh, he can't even pay his campaign workers what he believes in. <laughs> that is funny, having them out there <laughs> talking about that. He's I, wish, I wish he would have asked them about that. Working more than 40, working them more than 40 hours a week and uh, not not making them get uh, at least four, $15 an hour off of those hours. And he is out Slavery, there basically. talking about this. But what we need is a mandate for all of the other Democratic presidential candidates to have to pay $15 an hour too, and then they'll all be able to do it. Yeah. So then they'll all be equal competitive. They all have equal burdens to win the presidency. And what that means is they'll all be, he's saying it, he's saying it out loud that they'll all have the same burdens. They're all going to have to make the changes in their prices. You know, everyone's going to have to do that. And then they'll all be able to afford it. That's basically what he's saying. Everyone's yeah. going to raise their prices. Yep. That's what they're going to do. That's what they have to do. How many times on this program have I said that Walmart operates on a 2% profit margin? 2%. They literally sell their products like pennies. Pennies. Like they make penny profits. But they have so many stores that those pennies add up to a whole bunch of dollars. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that they're making just crazy amounts of money off of each one of the workers that they have in their store at all. It means they're making a very, very, very small amount off of each one of the workers that they have in their store. If you force them to pay all of them more money, they're going to fire most of them or they're going to create machines that can stock their shelves like they're already doing right now you know that's what they're going to do or amazon's creating a store where you don't it like you pick up the product and you're it just knows that you have it in your bag yeah when you leave with it it charges your amazon account yeah it's amazing by yeah. the way that's that's so good so robots are going to stock the shelves yeah and like literally it's a, it's a store where no one even has to be in there you just go <laughs> You pick something up off the shelf. I'm finally moving to the second page of my notes, by okay, the way. Good. Two full pages of notes today on stuff. This is another uh, This is another thing on the minimum wage, so that's why I wanted to tie this in real quick. Uh, let's see, 36 seconds. Uh, cut seven, go. Unacceptable. Uh, to a young woman um, uh, last night uh, who was working, going to college, working full-time, trying to take care of her family as well. So I think... Look, the minimum wage has not been raised in 10 years. It is now $7.25 an hour, which is clearly unacceptable. Um, the cost of housing, California, all over this country. Okay. We'll just stop right there because that was actually the point that I was trying to. So mm -hmm. the minimum wage has not been raised uh, in 10 years is what he's saying. He actually went on to say, now that I remember, he says that these are not kids that are working. You know, These are people in their 30s that are working and making the minimum wage. Luckily... Luckily, Google exists, and I can find all these stats on mm -hmm. people making the minimum wage. So um, first off, his, his talking point about how the minimum wage has been the same for the last 10 years. Well, what's also happened over that 10 years that I thought was really, really cool was that 10 years ago, about 6% of hourly workers in the United States were making the federal minimum wage or lower. 6%. Today, that number is 2.7% hmm. of workers in the United States are making the federal minimum wage or lower. So he's not pointing out the fact that half as many people are working on the minimum wage as they were 10 years ago when it was that number. That's a pretty big increase. Well, decrease, I guess, technically. So I also wanted to look at, so 2.7% of hourly workers in the United States are making the minimum wage, 2.7% of them. So of those people that are making 
the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage or lower, half of them are under 25 years old. Hmm. Half of those people. So, and then also of people age 16 to 19, 10% of them are making the federal minimum wage, while only 2% of people over the age of 25 are making the federal minimum wage. Meaning that, yes, it is younger people that are getting paid the minimum wage. Yeah. It is half as many as it was 10 years ago, but it is still 50% of the people that are making minimum wage are under the age of 25. And that's only, it's only 2.7% of the people working anyway that are, that are making this. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, it, it's just a really, I hate what he does with statistics, man. The, the manipulation behind the way that he talks about things. It's all emotion-driven. Did you hear that little story that he gave before he said what he said? Yeah. This woman who's got kids trying to go to college. and Better you know, her life. You gotta, because the problem is your, <coughs> your brain's got to go through a, through a filter. Hopefully the first one is rationality. And then once you get through that, it maybe gets down to emotional responses, things like that. Hopefully, not That's all not people. Not all people go through that it's filter. Most most of the time, it's emotion first. What he does is he makes sure that you turn off that rational side of your brain, get that out of there. Just get that. Just clean that right out. So now we're talking emotionally. This woman has kids, you know, making minimum wage, trying to go to college. That's sad. It's one person. It's one per. It's one person out of out of everyone. He says, you know the. A lot of these people are in the 30s. I had this woman, that, and then he tells a story about this lady that's in her 30s. Yeah. That does not mean that statistically most of the people are in their 30s. That means this one woman that he talked about on the program was in her 30s. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter now. He's got you in your feelings. Yeah. Doesn't matter anymore. So, it, uh, man, it makes me mad. So, the, and the minimum wage thing kind of hits close to home because I've got a lot of family up in Illinois, and they are probably going to be closing a business because of Illinois' minimum wage going up to 15 because they do not make that much money off of their employees right? at all. They will be losing money all the time if they are having to pay those people that much money. So that it's a real thing. This is not just us being annoyed about something or us saying don't hurt people and don't take their stuff or us saying taxation is theft. Like None of this is just us purely being annoyed. This is real stuff. where People are going to be unemployed in a town in Illinois because of people raising the minimum wage because of this. And this, I would I would encourage anyone that doesn't believe us to go start your own business. To like try it out. Like really like do the actual scientific experiment of starting your own venture. Because like anything that you do in life, like you could do it yourself, you know? There's pretty much it doesn't matter even if you're a teacher, like you can educate people online. You know, like start your own business and then try to hire employees and try to wade through all the the regulations and things that you need to have a business and all the taxes you got to pay and, you know, the people you have to employ and and see how much fun it is. You know, I was talking to somebody about this, you know, a couple months ago and they're like, well, I don't want to like I don't want to start a business. Okay, Okay. so what if what if nobody wanted to start a business? Who would we work for? Yeah. Like, I guess everyone would band together and create the products. Right. It's like, okay, yeah. cool. Like you don't like, sure. You don't want to work for a business. You don't want, she's like, she said like, Oh, well, I don't care about being rich. I don't want to start a business. So it's like, okay, well, even if you don't 
most business owners aren't rich, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we see this idea of like these business owners that are just flowing with cash. They just like sleep on mattresses yeah. made out of cash and which doesn't sound very comfortable. Um, and they, <laughs> and they like just have like these, you know, fountains like, you know, like cheese and chocolate fountains, but it's like cash just coming out of it. And they got this like cash printing press underneath and, you know, like you see, you remember like Donald Duck, I think, like he dove into the gold and stuff. And oh, the coins, yeah. Yeah, he had all the coins and, you know, people. Swimming around in there. That's what people view rich people as, but that's not really most, not even most, not even, I wouldn't even say like 70% of business owners, not, or not even close to well, that. Well, no, we're talking about literally 1% of, of people. Right. Actually, he talked about three people. What percentage of America is three people? One one millionth, yeah. I guess. Yeah. One one hundred millionth. Yeah. Is what that is. What's is, that? Point zero zero. As an example, zero, one zero three. One one hundred millionth of people are doing this, and have a lot of money. You think Jeff Bezos works less hours than you do? Right. No. No. Right. If you think you've taken on more risk than Jeff Bezos did. Mm-hmm. So when it, people invest in your company, I mean, you owe them. That's right. Big. Like you have to answer. Yeah, what do they owe you when the price goes down? Right. Uh, speaking of Amazon, um, Joe, I wanted to talk to you about Amazon. I'm glad you brought up Amazon. Because one of, one of the things that always freaks me out is when I find out that enormous corporations that make billions of dollars have tax loopholes where they literally pay no money. How is that possible, and how do you stop that? Well, it's the same thing as the drug companies. How do you stop that, Charlie? These big companies like Amazon pay no taxes at all. Absolutely zero. No yeah. taxes. There's no there's no taxation from them. Yep. They got away with none. Actually, thank God again for th- this Google machine. Good Lord. You really can find everything on there. It's so good. Just about. So if you take the time to actually research some of the things that Bernie says, which we do on BernieLies.com all the time, uh, you could actually see that Amazon paid uh, in 2018. billion in taxes. 1.4 billion. So with that that news headline that says Amazon paid zero dollars in federal taxes last year, there's some pretty important things behind that. Yes, the corporate tax the corporate federal income tax rate, they paid zero dollars. That's true. But then they also paid all their state and local taxes, their taxes to Things for other countries, they're, uh, you know, when they were selling products over there, then they also, uh, well, they're payroll taxes. You got, you've got uh, your and Social Security. You got all that stuff. The, you know, the actual payroll tax is twelve point five percent. You pay six point two five percent, and Amazon pays six point two five percent. So they did still pay taxes. They paid $1.4 billion in taxes. We were talking about how hard it was for Amazon, for Jeff Bezos to get this thing going, how crazy of an idea it was. As of, this was 10 years ago, as of 2008, do you know how much money, do you know how much profit Amazon had made as of 2008? Negative. They were in the hole. Negative $3 billion from the time that they went public. Negative three. They still they lost money in 2013 or 14. Still negative at that point in time. Obviously, they've blown that out of the water now with what with what they're making. They they're actually profitable now. Mm-hmm. As 
you know, opposed to a company like Twitter that had one quarter of profit and and they're never probably the amount of money they've spent is never going to be recouped. But uh, with Amazon, that has been recouped now. But so they pay one point four billion, and with it the way that they did that was because they had some of these loopholes, these evil, evil tax loopholes. The main one they take advantage of is that if you reinvest your money in research and development and infrastructure and expanding your business, then you get to write that off on your taxes and you get to reduce your corporate tax rate by doing that. Was that a bad thing, you think? You think it's bad to incentivize people to reinvest their money to expand their business and hire more to, workers to expand like, like isn't Am- i think amazon's building facility here in nashville they are yeah they were going to build this really big one in new york but aoc said no not doing it they pulled out not mm-hmm. doing that at all <clears throat> so yeah they're putting uh five thousand jobs here in nashville going to be a pretty big pretty big little uh, c- uh corporate hub for them and they said all are going to be six figures plus yeah they're like going to be five thousand jobs it's going to be Pretty pretty good. I might see if I can go work there. You, you know, Paradexo oh. is going to have some competition. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see about yeah. that. So they the other ke- thing. Well, the other thing I want to say about that too is the other thing that businesses can do is you can write off your losses. Yeah, that it, that's a good thing too. And one thing that Amazon has done is they've actually deferred some of their taxes for several years. And this is something that you can do if you're smart. You can. Uh, defer these year over year and then you can report these losses now whereas maybe they didn't report all of their losses in 2012 they carried those losses over to 2018 so they could report them in 2018 as losses that the business took because they didn't need to report any more losses in 2012 they already weren't paying any taxes so you can carry that over as many years as you want it's obviously a loophole that's that's one of those evil corporate loopholes (laughs) <laughs> it must be stopped. So we, we got to get those out of there. But so what they did was as they keep expanding, they keep reinvesting in their business. It's a good thing to reinvest in your business because how many employees do you think Amazon had um, in early 1995? Hmm. A couple. Yeah, like two or three. Two or three. So it's a bad thing to reinvest in your business. You know, you shouldn't invest. You shouldn't expand, right? We don't like people expanding their businesses. But wait, now they have 600,000 employees. How would they have those employees if they would not have reinvested in their company and kept expanding? When do you get to draw the line on when it's time for them to stop expanding? Right. How can you draw that line? Because your principle dictates that in 1995, they should have taken any profit that they made and divided it out between those three people and never done anything. And then they would have just sat there being two or three people working at a place called Amazon.com. And made sure that they didn't have any, uh, make sure they pay their taxes too. So you have to look at where you're going to draw that line. Because why are you saying right now that it's time for them to re, maybe, maybe 10 years from now, they're going to employ 5 million people at 15, 20 bucks an hour. You know, have places in Nashville where everyone's making six figures, stuff like that. Well, wait, you want them to stop putting money into expanding. You know, that's what your tax system says that, you uh, shouldn't be able to write off those uh, reinvestments. You should still just have to pay those taxes. So you're going to de-incentivize reinvesting in the company and uh, make sure that they kind of slow down their expansion and get the money into the right hands. You're taking money away from people in the future whenever you do that. You know, There could be 4 million people that are going to have an amazing job at Amazon 
in 2030. Or we could draw the line, say that it's time for them to stop expanding, time for them to stop building out their infrastructure and just keep it right here at 600,000 jobs. Yeah. You know, that's that's what these, that's no, what these people are saying. Enough. They're big enough. They got a monopoly. Yeah. Yeah. They have a monopoly. <laughs> of course they do. Yeah. They, they, they service like 30% of all online retail. So, yeah. That's, that's monopoly standards. Obvious now. monopoly. Yeah. That's actually the last clip I had. Oh, that's man. what I have. Well, how did you feel about how did you feel about overall Bernie Sanders talking on Joe Rogan? Well, <clears throat> for the most part, it's uh, it's a bunch of lies. It is it's really what it is, and I mean, it's like there's two types of lies, right? You can basically not tell the truth, and then you can omit the truth. And a lot of what Bernie does is uh, omit the truth. It doesn't go deep enough into understanding. Number one, the impl- impl- uh, implication of these policies, the historical implications of what these policies do. And two, it doesn't go deep enough into um, the statistical analysis to figure out what these things actually cost, what we actually spend money on, what our actual out-of-pocket expenses are, what actual profit margins are. Bernie Sanders has never done anything in his life. Think about this. This guy has done nothing in his life. Nothing. He has been in government his entire career. He's never owned a business. He wrote a book which somebody probably helped him write. And because of his name recognition for running for president, uh, the guy was sold enough. Now he's a millionaire. And, you know, if you if you want to be a millionaire, you write a book, too. You know, that's exactly what he says. Like, how capitalistic is that? Like, Jesus Christ. So you're, you're getting all of this economic and business advice from a guy who's literally done nothing, nothing of significance in his life except be in government. That's it. He went from mayor to senator and presidential candidate. That's it. That's all he's ever done. Most of the money he's received, most of it by far, has been forcefully taken from other people and given to him. He's never, other than his book, has never freely been given money by anyone. Mm-mm. Never freely, never been given money in exchange for value that he was creating at all. Campaign donations. Yet those people who get money freely, voluntarily in our society are demonized by this person, are demonized by this person, even though they got the money voluntarily and all the money he has was taken by force through threat of violence. If you don't pay your taxes... You are under threat of physical force by the government. That's where the money that has gone to him came from. But what I mean by physical force is, if you don't want to pay your taxes, just try it out for a few years. See how that goes. When they come to you and say that you owe them 50 grand 10 years from now, tell them you're not going to pay them. Just say that. What do you think is going to happen after that? Eventually, they're going to put a uh, federal case on you uh, for tax evasion. What it, what what's going to happen when you uh, when you don't pay them mo- the money? They're going to put you in a cage. Well, guys and gals will come to your house with guns. Yeah, they're going to send people with guns to your house to put you in a cage well, if you, have, you don't pay them money. Well, you have two choices: you can fight the guys with gals yeah. and guns, and more than likely you're going to die. Yeah. Um, and if you don't, then you'll there's going to be other charges. You'll be imp- like then you'll go to a cage and you'll literally be there the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, like uh, Peter Schiff's <clears throat> dad died. Died in prison, I mm-hmm. believe, because he refused to pay his income taxes. Yeah. I mean, that's a principled stand. And then lived on 
taxes. Yeah. <laughs> <in> prison. <laughs> Literally lived on taxes his entire <laughs> life. Well, he probably, I mean, he probably paid, would have paid that much. He probably added that much value oh, in yeah. some kind of way. But um, that's the thing. We say violence. We say the threat of death. Because what happens when the cops come to your house to take you to prison for tax evasion and you refuse to go with them? You know? You're under threat of death to, to give Bernie Sanders money. Mm-hmm. You're not under threat of death to give Walmart or Amazon money. No. At all. Never. You can choose to not do business with them for the rest of your life. The rest of your life. You don't Many have to people do, do. You don't have to give them anything at all. You can shop at your local store. If you've got one, go to the dollar store if you want to. Just go to gas stations for, for all your stuff. Create your own shirts. Yeah, make your own shirts. You can weave. Yeah, that's actually what you should do. That's the best thing for ec- yeah. economically is that you you do every single thing. Don't ever farm out any of that work at all. Grow your own food, you yeah. know? So That way you're not giving your money to these evil evil rich people. Yeah. We, uh, man... This is why we have BernieLies.com. Yes. I love it. I love the fact that we grabbed that name. You know, I got a notification from uh, GoDaddy saying that that name, that we could sell that for a decent amount of money. Oh, nice. Not going to. No. But, yeah. They said basically that that, that name is worth like a thousand bucks right now. We could that's, sell to someone. That's so, not bad. Yeah, not too I like bad. that. But uh, what would you tell people to do to, to, help, to help the situation, Charlie? Well, obviously don't vote for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> Like the the biggest thing, and we talk a lot about this is, is that it doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't. It doesn't even matter if Bernie Sanders gets in office. Like, it's going to make things a lot harder for you. But the responsibility still lies on you, the individual, to make the most out of the one life that you're given. the The non renewable resource that you have, which is time, you are solely responsible for that time and what you do with it. And I love, you know, guys like Gary Vee, like it doesn't matter if Trump's the president or Bernie Sanders is the president or, you know, Ted Cruz or whoever it may be, Hillary Clinton, who cares? Elizabeth Warren. It doesn't matter if the chief Native American is running the country or quote unquote running the country. Um, It's on you. It's on you to make the most of the limited amount of time that you have, this finite consciousness that you were gifted which, by the way, is very difficult to have. It's like one in, you have a 1 in 420 trillion chance of being a human being and, and having the, the unique uh, perception of reality that you do. And so what are you going to do with that? Ask yourself, like, this gift of life that you've been given, what are you going to do with it? And we obviously would like to make it as easy as possible for people to live the most abundant and prosperous lives they possibly can. And we live literally in the greatest time, in the greatest country, in the history of all mankind, and you have the possibility to do whatever it is you want to do with life. And it doesn't matter what shortcoming, shortcomings that you have, you know? It's like, um, they're, they're, they're called, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I got a lot of baggage in life. Well, uh, my girlfriend and I have a better term for that because baggage just sounds bad. It's, it's kuchamans. Okay. It's a synonym for for bad things that happen in your life, let's say, because everybody has a story. You know, everybody comes from poverty or even if you're rich, like maybe your dad was alcoholic or your mom died of cancer or you've got an autoimmune disease or your dad wasn't around when you were growing up or, you know, your, your, your brother 
beat you up because uh, you were smaller than him or whatever it is. There's people go through all kinds of crazy things in life. It's, it could be a car accident. It could be whatever it is. And you still have a meaning and a purpose and you still have a time here on earth where you can, you have the sole choice to give yourself the power to make the most of it. And that's what I would tell people. We should absolutely defeat Bernie Sanders and not let him become president because that would make pursuing that way more difficult. But I will tell you, it doesn't matter who's in charge. You have a responsibility to yourself and to your family. I would, I would agree with that. And these ideas, it's not just about beating Bernie Sanders because it's the ideas will live on. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, we don't create this website because we hate Bernie Sanders. It's because we want to disprove the ideas that he talks about. He's one of the largest mouthpieces of this destructive ideology. And his, you know, even after he dies, his ideas are still going to be out there. We'll only have to change one letter on the website. We'll be able to, (laughs) we'll be able to keep this going forever. and, And we have to keep talking about how wrong the ideas of democratic socialism or socialism or communism, all those things are because it is best that everyone be given the freedom to trade their own value with one another. That is what we've seen has brought the most amount of people out of poverty. The standard of living is insane compared to what it was 100 years ago. You've got more than the richest person in the world had 100 years ago. They would trade it with you in a second to have some of the freaking crazy stuff that you've got in your life that they never knew was going to exist. Air conditioning, <laughs> you know, yeah. your cell phone, you know, all, all of all of these things the standard of living has gone up tremendously thanks to capitalism, thanks to people being able to freely trade and seek value uh, with one another. And we want to keep pushing that all the time. You can, uh, you can follow us on at Good Morning Liberty. I almost said Darlene Prade again. Good Lord. Why? 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 I don't know. You We've can follow us about this for two hours at Good Morning Liberty at Good AM Liberty on Twitter. Good Morning Liberty on Facebook subscribe to the podcast really really important you yes. got to do that you still have time yeah. you still have time uh we extended that throughout the entire show actually that button is still available if you're still listening and uh you can hit that subscribe button and your this ep- the t- uh, tomorrow's episode will be available on your phone when we post it tomorrow how cool is that it's pretty cool if you want to put your money where your mouth is and this is what i think is most important If you want to put your money where your mouth is in defeating this socialist, tyrannical, communist, Marxist ideology that will make it way more difficult, way more difficult, slash you could lose your life in a prison camp (laughs) if if these policies are implemented and and are extended over a period of time, then you can go to goodmorningliberty.us slash shop and you can buy a t-shirt or a sticker or a coffee mug. It's like Bernie lies and taxation is theft and all these things that will support defeating this tyrannical ideology that we all hate. So you guys do that. And if you buy a t-shirt tonight, we'll be back here tomorrow and we will do this all over again. I hope you guys have a good day and a good morning. Liberty.